good morning, everyone. As we launch into the 16 days of activism to end gender-based violence, uh, it's wonderful to be gathered and also to have with us two phenomenal experts who really dedicated their lives to this issue. I think all of us would certainly agree that this year's 16 days is particularly important as we look around the world. Um, certainly, you know, rise we see anytime there's conflict, anytime there's chaos, women always bear the you know larger brunt of the challenges of the violence. Um, but I think at the same time, one of the things that we see here at Vital Voices is that women are the solution leaders, the peace builders, the ones who cross the lines that divide, the ones who come up with those innovative solutions. And why? Because they are the closest to some of those challenges around the world. So I'm really thrilled um, to be joined by these two phenomenal women for a discussion to kick off um, our 16 days of activism um, commemoration. So first, Elsa Marie De Silva, um, who has been a longtime member of Vital Voices Global Network. She is a former honoree of Vital Voices and founder and CEO of the Red Dot Foundation. Um, which we'll talk much more about, and I'm so thrilled to hear how she's actually utilized the Vital Voices Network to really spread um, the model that she's created. And more recently, part of Vital Voices, um, Sarah Wahidi, she is the founder and CEO of Etrisal. Yes. Okay, great. Um, it's Afghanistan's first civic technology startup. It's fascinating because the two of you didn't know each other, I think, until a few months ago yeah. um, when we were all together um, <laughs> in Venice for the Vital Voices Dialogue, um, really focused on the rise of disinformation, digital dictatorship, violence against women online. Um, but I think what's fascinating, what's so important for this discussion is that you are both sort of turning the tables on, on that discussion in many ways because you're using technology to provide safety, security, and information to women and, and to citizens. So, Elsa, why don't we start with you? Talk a little bit about, I mean, I love the genesis of how you started um, your organization um, and model. I think you were in Sweden. Talk a little bit about that. Take us back, if you can, to those days. Thank you, Elise. And it's always great to be at Vital Voices. And welcome, Sarah, to the network. Uh, it's an amazing network. So in 2012, you know, I say it's a landmark year for me because I had reached about 20 years working in uh, the aviation industry. I had um, first worked with Jet Airways and then Kingfisher Airlines, which were two of India's largest airlines. And I reached my glass ceiling. So I was looking for my purpose. I wanted to pay it forward, work on women's rights, but didn't know which aspect to focus on because as you know, there's so much of work to be done. And um, I was part of this, uh, uh, you know, program called the um, Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility uh, Management uh, Fellowship, which the Swedish Institute, which is the cultural arm of Sweden, had put together for Indian professionals. And it kind of, you know, introduced me to these concepts of sustainability and corporate responsibility and my airline, Kingfisher Airlines, was at the same time going through a financial downturn and eventually it shut. And I was like, you know, um, we are not working and living our values, but yet there are these concepts, which is about the greater good that corporates have to do in society. So, I, you know, there was this whole transition period. And during this uh, uh, this program, I was introduced to Harass Map Egypt, and I thought, okay, that's a cool concept, but we don't really need it in India right now. And how wrong I was, because 10 days after returning from Sweden, we had this horrific incident where a young woman, uh, Jyoti Singh, was gang raped on a bus in Delhi and um, left to die on the streets. And that incident was so brutal that it, you know, it made you pause and think. I personally was emotionally triggered to remember my incidents of being groped on a train as a 13-year-old, witnessing masturbation on buses, being catcalled on the streets, being sexually harassed at the workplace. Things that happened and we took as part of our daily routine but suppressed in our memories, never formally reported. And what I realized was a lot of my friends had similar experiences and none of us had also reported. And so 10 days after the gang rape, 
I, uh, with some friends, launched Safe City, which was, uh, you know, uh, build on from Harass Map Egypt, customized to the Indian context. And uh, it started off as an immediate response to the gang rape. I didn't want to only participate in protests and demonstrations or on social media, but really take some action. But I didn't really have a plan. And all of 2013, the story started coming in from all parts of India and abroad because we got a lot of media attention. And I said, yeah, we're onto something. And since my airline had shut, I was still working on recovery plans, but I had a lot of time on hand. And I used to use a lot of data in my previous role, right, to make current and future business decisions. So that's what we really do at Safe City. Use historical experiences to understand patterns and trends at the local level and then uh, figure out what could be possible solutions. And uh, from there onwards, it became a journey. I was very fortunate to be part of Vital Voices in 2014. Uh, and uh, Vital Voices, <laughs> I remember I was part of VV Lead. They invited me for this regional gathering in Nepal. We were just nine fellows from different parts of the world. And I walked out of that gathering with 50% of my colleagues saying, this is so cool, we want to be part of it. How can we be part of it? And we had not even registered our organization. So I always say before we even registered, we were already international thanks to Vital Voices. Oh, oh. Well, Sarah, talk a little bit about your, the genesis of your organization. Well, first of all, thank you, Elise, for having me and for Vital Voices. It's, it's so wonderful to be here after an amazing time in Venice. I learned so much um, and it was, it was an honor. Um, in terms of the genesis of, of Ehtisab, um, it happened from a personal experience. I was living in downtown Kabul at that time, and it was May 8, 2018. I'll never forget it. Um, I was walking home from work. At that time, I was working at the president's office in Afghanistan. And um, usually people who work in the president's office, they would take uh, bulletproof cars, uh, you know, utilize those kinds of armored vehicles. But I love to walk in the city. I love to meet people and get to know them and so it was a regular day walking home and i was i was just getting to the corner of my street in downtown Kabul. i heard someone say his vest isn't working his vest isn't working and when you live in Kabul, you put two and two together who what does it mean that a vest doesn't work so um i just started running with a, a, a whole bunch of different people behind me and within i would say a few seconds there was an explosion and um, I ran home and then I watched explosion after explosion after explosion. And this was from you know, where I'm sitting to the end of this, this uh, auditorium. And I had a friend who was at the US Embassy and she messaged me and she said, um, Sarah, do you know that there was an ISIS attack on the roof of the Indian Embassy and it's happening right now? And I said, all I see is smoke, I see explosion, I have no idea where you got, where you got the ISIS from. I have, I have no idea how you knew this is the Indian, Indian office, Indian visa office. And she said, um, well, we get these alerts from INSO, a company, and these are immediate text alerts. And uh, I just want to let you know because she knew I lived in downtown Kabul. And it was just a light bulb moment where I thought, you know, I live here. Um, my grandparents live here. My family lives here. Um, why is it that I don't have access to this kind of platform? And within, I would say, four or five months, I started on the first draft of Ehtisab. Um, and it wasn't an alerts feature, it was actually just a platform to um, basically rate city officials. Um, my thought was, why would an explosion happen in downtown Kabul? Why is safety such a, a horrific issue? It must be something to do with the municipality of our leaders. And I thought, perhaps if people make an informed voting decision, um, that can assist with that safety issue. But that was wrong. Because with, I'm sure Elsa knows this, when with civic engagement, the problem with civic tech is if the, if the user doesn't trust you, they're not going to use your platform. Mm -hmm. And once I created the first platform, this kind of rate your local city official process, uh, we got no users. And that was because people said, well, who are you? What is Ehtisab? You know, what does this mean? Um, so that first platform failed disastrously. And then I went back to the thinking process and um, designed the second iteration of Ehtisab, which is the current platform that you can download, which is a two-fold app. One is that it sends alerts. 
to users, um, near real-time alerts about city uh, service outages, electricity outages. Um, we've, we've done some harassment issues, um, uh, explosions, gunfire, and then also we collate reports from citizens as well. Um, and in 2020, we launched uh, just a month before COVID and we've been online ever since. Actually, when the Taliban entered Kabul at five in the morning um, on August 15th, 2021, in so that app in the beginning collapsed. They shut down within a few hours. The UN, the UN uh, has an alert system as well. They shut down within a few hours. And all that was left was nine Afghan youth between the ages of 20 to 25 who were like chatting and WhatsApping, like, do we keep this up or do we also shut down? Because we had all these contact points. And we were like, well, call INSO, call UN Alerts. And they said, shut down, shut down. They were, you know, it was unbelievable. And um, I talked to my team and I said, do we keep doing this? And they said, yeah. And we were crying on the phone and, and we just kept it going. And I think that's why I, I echo what, what Elsa says is that it really has to come from the community. All of this civic engagement, civic technology, it can't be a transplant. I've seen apps from Venezuela, from Colombia, being taken from those South American contexts and brought to Afghanistan. Mm. And they fail within, yeah. I mean, months. Not in months is a long way, but, but in the first weeks, there was an app, a very popular e-voting app from Venezuela that USA took, brought it to Afghanistan. I consulted with them on this app and I said, look, you're gonna have to completely redesign this. It's not gonna work here. And the day they launched, they failed. And it was a $6 million project. And we sent alert, we sent reports about the e-voting. I said, well, this is my district, I wanna vote. And the messages weren't going through. They still had some Spanish that they couldn't translate to the local languages. Um, and it, it, was an, it was a disaster. Um, so the funny thing is actually, the reason why I, I think Ehtisab is going so well is, I knew what Elsa four or five years ago before I met her, my team, someone on my team said, have you heard of this platform in India? This is amazing. And then a huge part of the way that we did our reporting feature was based off of Elsa's design. So I have to thank you, Elsa, for uh, yeah, inspiring us in, in, in Afghanistan. So yeah, the, that local civic tech is, is the best. And, and we've learned a lot from, from Elsa and, and her team. Uh, but that's really the iteration and, and we've continued to grow. Um, we were only based in Kabul and now we send alerts to all 34 provinces. We uh, collect reports from all 34 provinces and we send near real-time alerts to all 34 provinces. And we've had interest from people in Pakistan, Somalia, Bangladesh, um, Sudan, uh, so many places who've said, can you expand this feature to our country? So it's something we're looking forward to in 2024 is expanding outside of Afghanistan into crisis dates. Wow, fantastic. And also just building on that, um, obviously hearing about how the work you've done has inspired people, but also Talk a little bit about how you've utilized the Vital Voices Network. I mean, you talked about that first meeting, but you've done that beyond. And now I think you're what? You've got a million users just in India or globally? Yes, so it's actually one and a half million citizens that have been engaged. Uh, we are in 20 plus countries and wow. we, are in we have 15 languages. So our application is in its third iteration. And I think that's also something that we need to talk about because tech is not static, right? You have to constantly upgrade it, uh, change it to meet the growing, uh, the ever-changing policy landscape as well. So we are now compliant with data privacy standards, uh, you know, the European GDPR, which is really, really strict on data privacy and security because our app is used in Europe, it's used globally. Um, just to backtrack, because I didn't really explain what SafeCity does. So it is a crowd mapping tool where anyone can report their personal experience of sexual and gender-based violence. It is available on web, Android, and iOS. I said 15 languages, so we have it in Arabic, not Arabic is in Afghanistan, but Arabic. Spanish, Portuguese, Hindi, um, French is the only major language that we don't have yet, but we are translating. Our latest is Ukrainian. So what it does is all these stories, individual stories are collated as location-based trends. So you can see what happened, where it happened, the day of week, the time of day. And this data is really actionable, helps you 
pinpoint trends and patterns that can then be used either to strengthen your programming on uh, ending violence or even work with police, city officials, transportation, etc. So what we've done in our third iteration is make the platform easily usable by different communities. And our Vital Voices partners all around the world have been really instrumental in um, helping me scale, but also think of the design. Because as I said, it's the third iteration, right? So a lot of the inputs have come through our partners and our community members. Usually tech is designed by men who have no idea what women's lived experiences are. For example, most of you have heard of SOS apps, right? But do you use one? Even if you have one, you're not likely to think about it in a time of, in a moment of crisis. I can never find my phone when I need one, so I'm not going to think of an SOS application. But we definitely want to make the system better for us to operate in and live our lives safely. So Safe City is a platform where once you've had a chance to, you know, cool down, relax, you can think about the incident and report it. And in doing so, you're contributing to a data set that is useful. Now, how have our partners used it? And even we have used it in India. So I'll give you Jane Anyango, one of our first partners from Kibera, Nairobi. She works in, a, in an informal settlement called Kibera. Google Maps don't even work over there. That means, you know, the streets have no names. But we were able to help her cluster data that she collected. And she was already collecting data through boxes placed in schools. So she had already identified that, you know, children and young people were experiencing a lot of violence. And they would write these anonymous notes and put it in boxes called talking boxes. Now her team and she would read these notes, but you know, they are individual stories. What we helped her do is digitize it, look at it as a collective pinpoint patterns and trends, and also cluster the data based on descriptors, the pink building, the big um, school or, you know, things like that. And she was able to engage religious leaders to talk to men and boys. She used community radios to make people aware. She was even able to engage UNFPA. And today, she has expanded to 45 schools in Kibera. In um, Romania, one of our latest partners, uh, their community actually works with Ukrainian women who are refugees. And you know they are going through a traumatic experience, being displaced but they were also target of street harassment. So with the Ukrainian women and the police, they've been able to identify how to make the space safer. And then Philippines, our latest partner again, uh, over the last six months to eight months, she's been working with mayors. Now, Maya Tamayo, she is part of VV Engage, which is a program for women's political participation. And she runs a program where uh, she helps women engage in politics, either they are mayors or aspire to be mayors or part of the local city government. One of the mayors partnered with us on the Safe City Project. She endorsed it, which is really useful because then it builds trust in the community to use the application. They already had amazing infrastructure like one-stop crisis centers, but not many were using it. Again, because either they weren't aware of it or there was a silence around the issue. But now her team would respond in real time to what was showing up on the map, issue circulars saying, okay, we have noticed a spurt of domestic violence. Why don't you come to the community center? Avail of some workshops and trainings and understand what resources are available to you or if it was stalking or digital violence. And as a result, they noticed a direct increase in the number of people accessing these resources. So my point is, 
how do you make systems in you know whether it's laws or community resources available to the community at large because in india for example not many go and report to the police not many are availing of one stop crisis center so you have to make these systems work and data from our app can help build the trust between community and institutions but also you know uh, create a space where everyone feels safe not only to share their story but also to seek the help that they need mm, thank you talking about safety and you were talking before about um obviously working in august of 2021 you kept going as you said how did you ensure safety of the people that were online did people use that as a tool if people tried to evacuate or get to safety um, can you talk a little bit about that and how would you keep people safe? And I can imagine that's a huge burden to carry. Yeah, um, so August 15th, um, everything kind of changed overnight. So I had tweeted something uh, about, you know, so we're, we're running this app called Ehtisab and we would really love if, you know, if there's some data scientists or stuff, you know, people who could support us in this, in this time because this is unprecedented. We never expected our government to collapse and then have now a a regime come in and we, we really didn't have the wherewithal to understand the nuances of how do you deal with an institution or, or a regime that's not legitimate and, and now is forcibly taking over an entire country and what does that mean in terms of information dissemination because now we didn't have you know UN alerts or INSO to rely on or even the US Embassy because one thing we would do is we would triangulate the report so when we got, when we got something we would go to UN alerts or INSO and say, let's just corroborate this. And we had that backing of those institutions to support us, but then suddenly you have everything disintegrate. So I tweeted this tweet and I woke up and the next day I got like, I don't know, 100,000 retweets. It was unbelievable. I had people from Harvard, from Yale, from everywhere saying, okay, you know, I want you to connect with this person and this. And, and we were able to strengthen the, the platform in terms of collating reports in the airport. So what happened was, as, as many of you know, um, the Taliban came in on August 15th and that was right away when the United Nations and the U.S. Embassy and, and basically everyone uh, within the international community evacuated from, from Kabul. While that was happening, um, many people reached out to us through Ehtisab saying, are you able to help us guide our very sensitive women and children outside of the city into the airport? And from there, we had a group of Afghans who were journalists, young Afghan youth who were still in the country. And we essentially created this mapping system of certain individuals living in specific districts of the city. And then trying to figure out how we would be able to map the Taliban roadblocks. Because as the Taliban came in, they set up roadblocks checking if they were Afghan officials, uh, soldiers, people who were pro-West. Um, and then trying to figure out, okay, in this area, there's a roadblock. We're going to have to send an alert um, through the application to get people to deter to move away and, and deter from that area. It was literally just learning second by second. It was an unbelievable experience and it was terrifying because we had instances where we would literally just in our database be like, um, okay, the Taliban is literally raiding my mom's house right now and I need someone to help guide her into the airport. And it was real time literally crisis urgent situations like literally life or death because we had many people who were detained we had women who um, had gotten urgent visas um, printed out for them and, and were asked to go to the airport so it, it, when i think about it now i have no idea how we were able to to keep it going but i i would say that it was very lorem ipsum it was kind of we're just gonna go uh, and learn a, a, as we go along with this um, but I, I would say that a lot of Afghans, especially youth, took initiative of that, that those few, first few days of how do we get people to safety um, and how do we support the international community to do that? So we had you know, U.S. veterans, we had um, individuals from the Canadian embassy, we had a, a wide array of individuals who were working with us on getting people out of, out of the, the city. And it was heartbreaking because in one end, I know that you know, if six million Kabul citizens can't leave and you're really only able to help those who have a connection to the Western world. Um, and then what do you do about the six million who are left? And, and we had no idea what it meant. Like, was this the Taliban of 1996 where we were going to see stadium shootings or was this kind of some new Taliban that was going to, uh, you know, um, basically say that they were this, you know, new Taliban 2.0? We had no idea. Um, and in terms of safety of my team, 
we had an office in downtown Kabul. The first day, the Taliban raid, raided our office. Um, they detained three of my staff. Um, they took all of the computers. Uh, they took, uh, I mean, everything and anything. Uh, and it was shocking because we were all working and then suddenly uh, a colleague said, literally on CCTV, we can see the Taliban coming into our office. And it was, it was terrifying. Um, and then it was just work from home. Just that afternoon, I said, uh, okay, so everyone go home. And um, they've been working from home since August 15th, 2021. Um, we had a female CTO, uh, the first CTO ever in Afghanistan's history, uh, chief technology officer. Her name is Nilfar Karini, and um, she worked at Ehtisab with me. And she went into hiding. Um, she had been directly threatened. Someone had seen her do an, an interview on Afghan TV about Ehtisab. And, she went into hiding and I helped her get out of the country. NBC did a, a report on her. Um, and the most heartbreaking thing for me was I was so proud of having 60% women on my team. Mm. We went down to one and that was me. Um, and that was uh, something that I really felt crippling guilt about for about a year until I felt comfortable with hiring women again. Because I couldn't, like you said, you know, how do you ensure their safety? I couldn't do that. And I had to be very honest with, with everyone who worked at Ehtisab and say, I can't actually ensure your safety. I cannot say that if you're at home, um, the Taliban won't come knocking in your door. We did use pseudonyms, so everyone had a new name, everyone had a new email, um, everyone made new Facebook pages. But I, I did felt, I did feel a lot of guilt about how do I keep women in my team because, as you had mentioned, women, the way that we report and the way that we build technology is much different than men. We were able to see those nuances, and it, it was integral for me to keep women in my team, and I'm sure we'll talk about it after, but in terms of gender-based violence and the way that we report about women, everything changed in the, in the way that we see the visibility of women once I had women on my team. When it was a 95% male team plus me, um, we had a huge gap in women's reporting measures. And I think that was the absence of having uh, a 50%, 60% female team, because now that we're back into uh, uh, parity, um, we're seeing more women report. We're seeing the nuances. I've had my staff, my female staff say, you know, this is an anonymous report, but I'm pretty sure this is a woman. And they're able to get those nuances that, that you know, I can't because I'm not there uh, anymore. And also that my, my male staff can't. Mm. So they're able to see those, n those nuances within the text. So those anonymous reports mm. and say, this is a woman. She doesn't feel comfortable saying that she's a woman, but we need to be keep guard. Um, so it's been difficult in terms of safety, but, um, you know, they work from home, we do what we can, but, uh, it, it has truly been disastrous in terms of, you know, female visibility, women's visibility technology. I think Saab is like the only technology startup at all in all of Afghanistan who has, you know, more than one or 2% women. So it's something we're proud of, but, um, you know, it's something that I, that I do struggle with because uh, I, am, I am deeply concerned. I mean, the Taliban is still arresting female activists daily. We have currently, I think, seven that we know of that are detained. Um, one three days ago and then another a week ago. Um, it's just incessant at this point. So if you're visibly speaking out against the Taliban, against gender apartheid, um, you're most likely going to get detained. So we have to be very strategic in terms of, of our platform and civic tech to balance activism but also to ensure that those platforms still run on a daily basis. Right, right. Wow. Well, it sounds like you threaded that needle very well, <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> Elsa, I just want to come back to you because I know that you have been able to utilize your platform to engage law enforcement. Talk a little bit about how, and both of you to talk about this, but how you really see the technology that you're building as a means to obviously create information, be a public service, but more than that, actually lead to legal change, lead to legal reform. You know, when I first started about 11 years ago, people didn't understand the value of crowdsourced data. I would keep getting this question all the time. But how do you know it's true? And what about that individual woman who's reporting? And I would say there are other nonprofits that work on individual cases, but nobody is doing it at the systemic level. And crowdsource data is useful because this is data that doesn't exist. Nobody is reporting officially. So this is not what the police have or the city officials. Now, why is it important? 
the very i love telling the story because uh, you know the first time i had a male data analyst um he looked at the data and he said it's all rubbish and i said why he says because the peak is between 12 noon and 2 pm and i said so what's wrong with that he says shouldn't uh, women get harassed in the night when it's dark and i was like no we are uh, mapping public space violence which we were doing that at that time not private space and public space you know women are out and about in the daytime so that's where the peak was but he was shocked so men often don't think about these things because it may not be their lived experience but think about who's planning our cities they are mainly men and if they can't take into account women's lived experiences they are not going to plan cities or transport for you for you to feel safe right uh, take for example the police we just started a new project in north india with a police commissioner who just took on uh, his new role in the city of faridabad one of the top districts where uh, they have high rates of violence against women and girls and he asked his team of police officers in front of us and they have women police officers what are the hot spots in the city and they couldn't mention it they didn't know and now that we've just started the project we've collected about 2000 data points and we told them these are the hot spots oh we know about it okay you know about it what are you doing about it they have cctv cameras but nobody is monitoring the cctv cameras but our data can help them identify location time of day day of week so that they don't have to monitor all cctv cameras all the time but certain locations they can place police personnel because they don't have infinite police personnel as well so when you have limited resources you know how to deploy those resources jane uh, in kenya uh, when she looked at her data she realized that their law did not include public space harassment in the definition of sexual violence mm-hmm. or informal work environments So they worked with an MP to use this data to make a case for addition in the law, right? So these are some of the examples how you can work with transport or police. We worked extensively with Western Railways. They carry millions of passengers on a daily basis. Now they their aim is also to create a safe transport system. But if they don't have data, nobody is using their helplines. Nobody is making official reports. they can very easily say there's no problem but because we have the data and we work with them we tell them okay which are the uh, specific railway stations which are the spots in and around the railway station so is there jurisdiction only the platform or the ticketing counter or the train or what about the immediate uh, space outside of it can they, they be responsible or can they work with another agency to make that space safe So these are some of the areas that we look at. And then another constituency that we work carefully with is youth. Young people on college campuses. We work with over 300 education institutions. Um working with their teachers, their parents and also the young people themselves. Our data shows that 90% of young people when they face such an experience do not go to an adult. Whether it's their teacher or their parent because they are afraid that their freedoms will be curtailed. so you know we don't have to have the taliban in india you know we also have our own cultural harmful gender norms where they confiscate your mobile phones they restrict your mobility in public spaces we just had a news report i mean i've been in the states for the last 3 months but in north india they said you shouldn't even step out after 7 pm but life doesn't end at 7 pm and if we are talking about equality is that the same a scenario for a male counterpart no so we've seen that in our communities women and girls have been able to negotiate for greater freedoms adding more hours to their productive life whether they want to use it for upskilling themselves getting a job or even just playing you know that two hours is so crucial right and is it only a woman's responsibility to make the space safe or is it uh you know the entire society around her so we've used art on walls we use street theater we use a lot of art forms to you know get men to be more conscious about this topic and take on more responsibility to make spaces safe wow thank you
You had a similar experience? May I realize? <laughs> <laughs> Law enforcement yeah. is not exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the most frustrating for me thing for me is, um, you know, of course, I'd love to see our reports go somewhere so we can keep them accountable, talk about areas that have a high frequency of security issues or um, women's issues. But the problem is that the Taliban does not care about any sort of women's issues whatsoever. And, and actually, in that regard, they find a lot of the focus that I've been doing in terms of gender-based violence, women's rights, is a huge liability for them. Because one one role that I have as a technologist is to build these types of platforms, but the second thing is to keep institutions like the United Nations accountable for the ways that they are actually interacting with Afghan women. And I know that I have that role now. Um, and a part of my role is to say that um, we're not supposed to be legitimizing this regime until we have an idea of how they're responding to gender apartheid and whether this this regime is one that actually takes women's rights seriously, and, and they don't. Yeah. We're seeing that because, I mean, one is 790 days of women and girls being banned from education. We're seeing the incessant uh, arrest of women uh, across Afghanistan, um, and employment is another uh, issue. Right now, in terms of healthcare, we're only really seeing women in two roles. One is in birth and in the last few moments in the ER. I mean, that's really the only moments a woman is going to be able to get sustainable support. Uh, and in terms of, of the women that I speak with, um, th their main thing is please document what we're telling you and please disseminate that as far and as wide as you can with the international community. I have a lot of individuals who uh, comment or send me messages on social media who say, you know, well, now that there's no war, it's a, it must be a peace, more peaceful place for women. But one thing is that women in Afghanistan for 20 years have fought so hard for education, for work. It might not be the same standard as, as it is, you know, in the Western world or even in India. Um, but their ability to go uh, and pursue their education in engineering and in healthcare and in technology has all been uh, erased. Um, and that's something they feel extremely strong about is uh, my purpose as a woman is not to just be alive. It's not just to breathe. It's to thrive. Uh, and that is something that I struggle with a lot in terms of um, women's visibility and, and the work that I do because I feel like this notion is being impressed upon Afghans that the war is over and you just need to move on now. But uh, we are literally seeing... 50% of the population being erased in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. And I find it highly concerning that there is um, no sense of accountability in the international community of how we can approach this. Um, but in terms of documentation, my main thing is, I think it was Maria Ressa who had said this in Venice. She said that a sustainable democracy or sustainable society, we need to see um, our safe societies uh, of engaged citizens as a currency. Mm. People who are engaged, people who are engaged within their communities is a social cur a currency in and of itself. Mm. Any sort of sustainable democracy, you're going to have to have citizens being engaged in, in order for that, that community to be sustainable and to be uh, a healthy democracy. And what we're seeing in Afghanistan is a complete lack of citizen engagement. Mm. My role in terms of the dissemination of reports or even having them documented is is step one. For for Elsa's case in terms of Indian and her first uh, case of, of where she started uh, her platform is, um, you have those structures of the police. You have this impetus to, to report because you have those collaboration methods where you can go and work with you know a police commissioner or, or some of the institutions across India, the railway networks. But in Afghanistan, you have nothing. It is complete barren land in terms of any sort of structure. So my role has really been more of a sociological role, is when people tell me a lot of Afghans is, why should I report to your platform? It's essentially the notion of visibility. We're not able to bring about change unless you actually go ahead and report it. If it stays within your own community or within yourself, mm. we're not able to actually see what's going on. So my job, one, has been beyond uh, getting accountability from some sort of institution or, or uh, government. It's how do I build that notion of you see something, you say something? Because that doesn't exist in my culture. Mm. It's really about if you see something, well, it didn't happen to me, why do I care? Uh, and that needs to change because I feel like 
uh, for Afghans really to take accountability uh, over their uh, their country and of their neighborhoods and communities, they need to start understanding that it is actually those smaller steps that uh, results in engagement with the Taliban in terms of keeping them accountable at, at the grassroots level, but also in terms of feeling like they have an ownership over the city. So unfortunately, Elsa is, you know, eons ahead in terms of her work because she's able to connect um, the report and actually being able to see uh, a tangible output, you know. Um, but for me, uh, it's mainly just that first, you know, kind of psychological step of, I feel like what I'm seeing should be disseminated with other people in my community. And that first step, I think, is going to be integral in terms of seeing more Afghans being involved in, in their local spheres, is feeling like their voice has meaning. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, specifically women, um, uh, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but in terms of a specific tool for women, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm working on something specifically for survivors of gender-based violence, and, and we're working on that with UN Women. Um, we're currently designing a platform. I guess I'll just summarize it, but if there's any questions, I can, I can debrief. But essentially, um, as many of you know, uh, shelters across Afghanistan were shut down in August 2021. Mm -hmm. So UN Women was funding, um, uh, with other agencies, were funding uh, women's shelters where women could go who were gender-based uh, violence survivors. But now those are shut down. And on top of that, also the um, the kind of short codes, the 911-esque platforms for women's uh, violence have also shut down. So essentially, there's no way of women to report gender-based violence, and there's no way to get support through a shelter for very serious, severe cases of gender-based violence. So um, some people at UN Women at um, the UN General Assembly had heard about Ihtisab and um, approached me and said, you know, we have a huge problem in terms of gender-based violence. We see a huge uptick of GBB, G, GBB cases, we have no idea of how to document them. Mm. Um, and because we can't document them, all the member states who are funding our programs for, for women in Afghanistan are basically saying we don't want to give any more money. Because how can you actually confirm that there are GBB cases happening? There's no data. There's no one calling into the, into the shelters. So I was uh, kind of brainstorming an idea with uh, a, a woman from UN Women and I came up with this idea, and I call it the lighthouse. And the question was, how do you get a GBV survivor to get support, but ensure that she doesn't get caught by her husband or by the Taliban or someone within her family? And for a lot of GBV kind of tech-oriented solutions, we always think about centering the survivor, of course, understandably. But in terms of technology, especially in crisis states, you kind of have to think outside of the box. So I thought, okay, we'll build an we'll build this will this platform and and we'll have this feature for this woman, but it'll be kind of a shadow app and it'll look like a calculator and you know kind of really innovative stuff. But then um, I was doing some research on GBV and, and some of these really innovative cases in in, um, in Africa, and I thought, well, what if the woman actually doesn't survive or doesn't have a phone, and we actually connect her with two lighthouse points? So essentially, the platform that we're building is going to work like this. So imagine a lighthouse, it has two points, and they send flares between each other to see whether they're active. So in terms of a survivor, you can't give her a piece of paper with a number, you know, this is a shelter, this is a woman who can support you because she could get caught, that note could be found by her husband or, or uh, whoever has, has, um, has you know, started that abuse, um, or, or the Taliban checking any movement if she's going to see a doctor for any sort of injuries. So. I'll, the idea is essentially that a survivor would go to a hospital, for example, for very severe injuries, and that uh, nurse or doctor has this app, which I call Rushnai, which means lighthouse, or light in, in, in Delhi. Yeah. And when the survivor meets the doctor uh, or nurse, she's been trained by UN Women in, in GBV support, and that doctor is able to connect the GBV survivor with uh, community support in her local neighborhood and says, oh, you know, you live in this district. Actually, we have this sewing center that provides support, but also GBV support because we don't say anything, any of these things now publicly. You're not allowed to say 
GBV shelter. You're not allowed to say UN women, you know, uh, training. So, you know, we call them sewing centers. We call them, you know, religious support. We call them, um, you know, socioeconomic training. But they're all women who have GBV case management training. They're kind of like superheroes. They're kind of mass superheroes. We don't actually say who they are, but they've all been trained to be case management workers for the UN women. So essentially, these two flares connect and say, I have the survivor here. I'm going to center with you. The survivor is given the information to say, you know, at, at two o'clock, you're going to go here to the sewing center, but she has no tracks. She has no app. She has no phone. And that's a way we ensure that kind of safety. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of individuals would think that way and say, you have to center the survivor. You have to center her in terms of the platform. But in the Afghan context, we're always having to think out of the box. Um, and in this case, we're hoping that the Taliban won't have flares because there's just literally no way of being able to to, to kind of uh, track mm. her through a phone or through a piece of paper with information on it. But just to say, you have a support mechanism and it's between these two flares and not the, the survivor as the, the center. So um, it's something that I'm really excited about. It's something that we're working on right now. Um, and we're gonna be launching it in two provinces in Afghanistan as a test. Mm. And if it goes well, we'll expand. And we're hoping that this can uh, can fill a gap in the fact that there's literally no GBV support for Afghan women right now. There's a lot of UN women trained support uh, caseworkers, and we're hoping to connect women with those uh, masked superheroes per se. So that was a long-winded um, uh, explanation on what we're doing, but yeah. Wonderful. I want to ask both of you just one last question. Um, and really it's about how do you engage big tech corporations? How would you like to? How are you currently engaging them in your work? Because I think they can use some great inspiration from both of you of how you've been able to use tech for good. We know that that is not the case um, in a lot of times in, in large corporations. So maybe talk a little bit about how you have worked with them, how you are working with them, and what you see for the future. So I think big tech has a lot to learn from, you know, all of us because we are closest to the community. And we've been invited to pretty much all their roundtables as experts. They pick our brains all the time, but then they don't, you know, I what I find, uh, you know, I find their approach very exploitative. They have an agenda, they pick your brains, but then they will never keep you updated on what they've been doing or um, actually implement for the greater good. They always have their own agenda at the center. So we've been part of uh, you know, discussions with Uber, uh, as you know that you know, uh, right shares, uh, women who reach a certain financial level of independence move from public transport to ride shares thinking that they are safer when in fact they could be also unsafe. And there have been several uh, rapes in India and uh, you know Uber has these safety councils, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, all of them have their uh, safety councils and we are part of that ecosystem. Uh, with the Brave Movement, we are working on child sexual abuse, making sure that platforms are more accountable to putting protocols in place that do not uh, allow perpetrators to function, uh, safeguard children, remove material quickly. But I don't think that they actually invest their money in having stronger protocols. Uh, a lot of this needs to be manned by humans, not bots. And they continue to, you know, outsource it to bots. So I, we work, we continue to work, we engage through, you know, um, networks like Vital Voices, but also other coalitions. And I think that needs to be a lot more intention and investment on their part. Um, yeah, I'm, I agree with you, Elsa, and I think in, in terms of my work, um, I was recently approached to be a trustee for a big tech company. Um, and my concern really is that I feel like civic tech is being pushed more and more to create a profit model. And I mentioned this in Venice and it really irks me that technologists like Elsa and I and so many others 
we're able to build these innovative ideas and people are always pressing like you know when it's, who are building the, the, these innovation innovative ideas or tech for good for example well a lot of us are building them but there's a hidden message within that and, and that's well what's what's the profit mechanism here and i find it so irksome that something which we are building which is a social good like i had said a healthy sustainable society is a social currency and we need to see it as such uh and and how am i supposed to create a profit model off of a platform which is meant to keep people safe like why is there an impetus for these you know uh profit models for things that should seem like they should be a part of our everyday lives um, there are applications that do it, like Citizen, for example, which was, I think, recently acquired by Jigsaw or Google. Um, you know, they have this kind of like private bodyguard that you can subscribe to um, through your, your, your phone. But, you know, I mean, it makes sense. But I feel like um, how Elsa said, it can't be tokenistic. It really has to be seen as civic technology and these innovations make social media platforms better. And in terms of governments uh, and their facilitation, I think that they need to be the middle ground between civic tech and big tech of saying, okay, at this table, we really need these grassroots organizations and, and, and initiatives to be a part of the conversation, but not just like, oh, we tick the box of like having that small startup as a part of the discussion in terms of GBV or in terms of uh, information dissemination, but actually be seen as, um, as supportive and as useful and as constructive. Um, and in terms of the way that I hope that I could, I guess, work more with big tech would be um, how to expand services like Akisab across the world, uh, because we are seeing an increase in interest of, of citizens being like, you know, I, I want to understand what's happening around me. I don't want it to be politicized. I don't want to have to pay for it, but I want to be informed of what's happening around me. So one is how to expand, like how Elsa has done so successfully. And the second thing is to be a part of the conversations in terms of the policies that are coming out of big tech uh, and how we can facilitate those. So uh, I don't really have much involvement with big tech right now, um, other than the fact that I've worked at Apple and, and some things like that. But um, I hope through Vital Voices and the, and the community that we have here, which is unbelievably large, uh, just to be in, in discussion with, with big tech as, as best I can. Well, thank you. And thank you both for your incredible work. Please keep it up. Um, and, and to everyone here, please spread the word. Um, I know we're going to transition now. We have a really exciting art activation uh, with our activists um, who are from Art Lords. We're super excited to welcome them. We're actually going to go outside, I think, in front of the building. Um, for a really exciting interactive um, painting wow. <laughs> discussion, discussion, exciting. activation. Anyway, but thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.